Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome everybody to episode 22 of Push Dose EMS, your monthly educational offering from the Milwaukee County Office of Emergency Management. I am your host, Jeff Matcha, the Clinical Education and QA Manager for the county. And joining me today are our usual uh, cast of characters. Uh, going down my list, I see uh, EMS fellow, Dr. Nico Rendovich. Dr. Rendovich, welcome. How are you guys? Uh, EMS fellow, Dr. Brandon Drezich. Dr. Drezich, welcome. Hi, everyone. And it's uh, EMS division director, Dan Podrar. Welcome, Dan. Hey, everybody. And last but certainly not least, uh, system medical director, Dr. Ben Weston. Dr. Weston, welcome. Hey, thanks, Jeff. All righty. As per usual, before we dive into the topic du jour with our fellows today, I will pass it around for some updates. So, Dan, any system updates this month? Yeah, Jeff, just one really quick one. It's going to be a short update here. Uh, so the guidelines, uh, those have been updated and released. Those should be out uh, in the app and up on the website as well. I uh, just want to say a thanks to the guideline and policy subcommittee to review and update the, case, uh, the patient care standards to provide the most up-to-date evidence-based care to our patients. I uh, also want to give a shout out to Linda for taking the lead and the big lift on running that committee. So uh, if there's any problems with any of the apps or the documents on the website, please let us know. We will certainly uh, turn our attention to them and get that taken care of. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. And I'll echo the appreciation to Linda and the guest committee. A lot of good work there. Uh, I will preface this here in the beginning, and I'll say it again at the end. If, as you're going through the guideline updates, you have questions, comments, things you'd like to a little bit more information on, please email us at emseducation at milwaukeecountywi.gov. Uh, the topic of next month's podcast is going to be diving into uh, some more updates and your questions on the guideline updates. So uh, please let us know. If you have those questions or if there's anything you'd like us to touch on a little bit further. All right, and from the medical direction side, Dr. Weston, any updates? Yeah, thanks, Jeff. So I'll give a second echo uh, to our guideline and policy updates and to Linda and the GAP subcommittee, particularly uh, Dr. Engel and our fellows who uh, they, along with Linda, along with everybody on GAPS has put a ton of work into these guidelines as happens every year. Um, but a lot of nice guidelines came out of it, uh, a lot of improvements based on uh, provider input, based on quality cases, based on new evidence. Um, so a lot of great changes. One in particular is our ROSC guideline, uh, and that's one we'll focus on today. What are the priorities of ROSC? So I'll hand it back to you, Jeff. Thanks. Thanks, Dr. Weston. And absolutely, uh, thanks for the segue into our fellows and the discussion du jour on post-ROSC care. Uh, so Dr. Redovich, Dr. Drazich, please take it away. Hello everyone and welcome to this uh, month's edition. Uh, today we are going to be talking about post-ROSC care, but before we get there, let's dive into a little re review of last month. So we spent a lot of time talking about OB and last month we talked a lot about neonatal care as well as the odd cases that you see in the mother. A quick review, we'll talk about the APGAR score. That's appearance, Pulse, grimace, activity, and respiratory effort. Remember that seven and above is generally normal. Four to six is fairly low, and three and below are pretty critical um, and need immediate resuscitation. In general, this is most helpful when it is indexed in comparison to the second number uh, to trend where we are going. 
And even if it's really low or even zero, just do what you do best and go through your resuscitation. Their survival rate isn't great, but it's definitely not zero in these cases. For meconium aspiration, remember historically we used to intubate these kids and do deep suction. We ended up doing a little more harm than good with that. Recent evidence has changed. You can still suction if you need to, uh, but no more intubation. When we look at NRP, so the neonatal resuscitation uh, programs, we want to prioritize ventil ventilation. Ultimately, there's really two phases to NRP. First, if the heart rate's less than 100 and they don't look like they're breathing adequately, we'll begin positive pressure ventilation. Second, after our initial interventions, if the heart rate is less than 60 or maybe even pulses, you're gonna begin CPR in those cases. We also covered a number of different medical conditions uh, that could happen in the pregnant woman, women, uh, starting with cardiac arrhythmias, including SVT, AFib, and VTAC. The going trend for these things is, yeah, we have some medications, but we're not 100% sure if those medications are safe in pregnancy. So the answer is gonna be, if they look unstable, just shock them. In terms of cardiac arrest, first for a medical arrest, Remember that for these guidelines, if they're greater than 20 weeks, roughly when the fundal height reaches the umbilicus, make sure to call online med control immediately. Push the abdomen to the left, take the pressure off of the IVC, and in the exceptionally rare cases, the hospital will have one additional thing to offer, potentially a perimortem C-section. The aim is to save the mother. You'll have to discuss that with online medical control. When we consider the traumatic arrests in the pregnant patient, it's pretty similar to standard trauma. The only other thing you could consider doing in these cases is pushing the abdomen to the left to take pressure off the IVC. Similarly, when they get to the emergency department, they may consider perimortem C-section to consider saving the child. So moving on to the topic at hand for this month, which is post-ROSC care. First and foremost, we're gonna go over the chain of survival. We talk about this a lot. It feels that it's at least about 50% of what ACLS training is. As a quick review, it's activation of the emergency response teams, high quality CPR, defibrillation, advanced resuscitation, post-cardiac arrest care, and of course, recovery. We've pushed this a lot. Uh, now we have early activations, sometimes things like cell phone notifications for the community with bystanders who can assist with CPR, pre arrival dispatch instructions for public access use of AEDs and everything in the community to get this started early. From when EMS takes over, things have changed a lot too, especially based on research and consensus. We've seen arguments about compressions to ventilation ratios. We've seen 15 and two, 30 and two, continuous. We've gone from monophasic to biphasic defibrillators which is what you might think about when you hear the old energy levels of 360 joules being dropped to 200 joules. We've gone from variable doses of epi and arrests, one milligrams every three to five minutes, 0.2 milligrams per kids for some people, the use of vasopressin, and we've settled back down to one milligram for every three to five minutes. What it comes down to is that cardiac arrest is the bread and butter of the pre-hospital setting. You guys are riding around in in uh, drivable crash carts. Often with the same equipment the hospital has and personnel who are very closely trained in managing this. Truly, you and EMS are the masters of ACLS resuscitation and research has shown the importance of treating cardiac arrest in the field by EMS rather than overemphasizing transport. 
what you might not realize is you actually have all the stuff, the main equipment needed for post-cardiac arrest care as well. This isn't hyperbole either. We've taken care of plenty of cardiac arrest patients during our training and practice. And I'll tell you right now, even the more advanced post-ROS care things that are in your ambulance, particularly in those very first important 10 minutes, the handful of things you can't do, honestly, in the emergency department, it's difficult to do too. Cathing STEMIs or placing people on cardiac bypass, those ECMO circuits you might have heard about. So why are we bringing this up today? You ever been in that situation where you get ROSC on your patient? You pack him or her up only to lose pulses at the exact moment you move them into the ambulance, or maybe after you've transported and right as you hand over to the ED staff. That's no coincidence. These patients are very tenuous, but an extra five to 10 minutes of post-resuscitation stabilization can help prevent that precipitous decline and protect that pulse you've worked so hard to gain. That's right. This month, we're gonna spend our time talking about post-ROSC care. Now, I want you guys to take a look at the updated ROS guidelines when you get the chance. There's a few changes in which might seem subtle, but are going to make quite a big difference. The biggest take-home point that we want to make is that we should truly prioritize stabilization before movement. I will say that again. Prioritize stabilization before movement. Unless there are compelling reasons to move immediately, i.e. an unsafe scene, do not rush. This even means leaving the patient on the floor for a little bit longer. ROSC patients are often unstable initially. Time should be taken to plan patient packaging, handling, and subsequent egress while they stabilize and build up that blood pressure. Any rough manual handling, jolting the patient, none of that is optimal. Use this time to make sure your IV lines are secure optimize ventilation and oxygenation, and anticipate and get ready to manage hypotension, shock. During this time, you should really just anticipate that this person's going to re-arrest on you. It's going to take some time for that heart to really, quote, wake up, so to speak. So you're going to have to really just expect it to happen on you again. So to dive in a little bit more here, first and foremost, oxygenation and ventilation. So to start, you can pull that ITD off. It's going to probably be in the way at this point. And as I'm sure many of you realize, leaving the Lucas on the patient is probably a good idea. Doesn't need to be running, doesn't need to be giving active chest compressions, but having it ready when you can just hit the button is a plus. Really, you're gonna want to maintain oxygenation greater than 94%, or at least try. By this point, this is by the books. If you've been bagging, you've got the high flow oxygen going, Maybe it's been a longer resuscitation and you've dropped in an eye gel or another LMA for an airway. You can follow the same methods you normally think of. They're also on your airway management guidelines. If you're struggling, remember that dope mnemonic. Which mnemonic? The dope mnemonic. Yeah, I'm sure it is, but which mnemonic is it? <sighs> dope. D, dislodgement. O, obstruction. P, pneumothorax, and E, equipment. This sounds straightforward, but remember, a lot of things just happen. The chest compressions are aggressive, and you might have lost the seating of your SGA. You might have gotten a big mucus obstruction or vomit or blood. All the chest compressions, though a relatively low risk, can potentially cause a pneumothorax, or sometimes your equipment might be unreliable. Unreliable equipment. Tell us a little more about how that oxygen sensor can be unreliable here. This part's going to get a little complicated. 
you know, you've all had ROSC and had that patient that you were struggling to get above 88% on your SpO2. You've done all the dope stuff. So what's going on here? You test it on yourself and it looks like it's working fine. Well, you need to remember for a second how the SpO2 monitors work. That red light you see is a photoelectric sensing probe, which measures the amount of red and infrared light being absorbed as an arterial oxygen reaches the capillary beds during systole when more light is absorbed and diastole when less light is absorbed. That sounds super nerdy, but there's a key point in there. It's measuring when light is being more absorbed and less absorbed during systole and diastole. That's actually the waveform you see on the monitor. So what's all this mean? Well, if you're severely hypotensive or you know, in cardiogenic shock, having previously been arrested, you might not get a good an SPO, you might not get a good SPO2 waveform. So speaking of equipment, what about capnography? Well, we use it all the time during cardiac arrest, right? We use it to determine if chest compressions are adequate. What are we looking for in that case? We're looking for expired CO2, right? Well, kind of. We're definitely measuring expired CO2, but that's not what we're really thinking in this case. What we're doing is using that expired CO2 as a surrogate for cardiac output. So we're getting an idea of how hard the heart is squeezing. This is why we like to think about end tidal CO2 in arrest. Typically at around 20 minutes, if the end tidal CO2 is less than 10, it's prognostically not great. If it's greater than 20, it's a little bit better. Not by any chance great, but better. Essentially, it means we're giving really good chest compressions, creating a good cardiac output. When the heart finally restarts, the intrinsic cardiac output is going to be better than those external chest compressions, which is why in ROSC, you typically see a sudden bump in your end tidal CO2. So what does this mean when it comes to post-ROSC care? Well, post-ROSC, we like that end tidal to have a goal of 35 to 40 essentially normal levels. If it's above 40, that's okay. Don't worry about doing too much about that. But when it dips below, you might have to start worrying that your cardiac output is dropping and you might get, be getting ready to code again. From a long-term standpoint, hypocapnia is actually associated with a worse neurologic outcome. But what about, end, what if the end tidal CO2 is like 60? Shouldn't I be making strong efforts to blow that off? A little bit of hyperventilation to prevent acidosis? That's an awesome question. Well, hyperventilation is not recommended either. Physiologically, it decreases the partial pressure of carbon dioxide, which in turn decreases blood flow to the brain, causing cerebral vasoconstriction and it aggravates anoxic brain damage. You might hear about adjustment being made in the hospital, but that's actually being determined by blood gas. So hyperventilation really just does create worsening brain damage. So in turn, when it comes to oxygenation and ventilation optimization, it's high flow oxygen aiming for an SpO2 of greater than 94% if you can, and titled 35 to 40, but above it's okay, and avoiding that hyperventilation. Finally, consider sedation. As these folks start perfusing their brain, they're going to start waking up. Waking up with a tube in your mouth and a broken chest seems pretty terrible. Luckily, most people don't remember it. It's about 2%, so try to sedate these people. Definitely didn't want to roll that dice. So moving on to your cardiovascular status, hypotension. Treating hypotension 
pre-treating treating hypotension, getting ready for that patient crash. This is a major change for the guideline this year. The goal is to go hard and early. We're talking two points of access, pressure bagged fluids, and getting ready with your pressors. That 20 cc per kilo bolus that we used to give, that's going in by pressure bag. That solid 18 gauge IV that I know you all place, the approximate flow rate's about 100 cc's per minute and can infuse a liter in about 10 minutes. And that's almost never the case by gravity alone. And this is why we're pushing for that pressure bag. We're gonna to try to get that whole liter in if we can. We're gonna optimize the flow rate of that IV. And rare that it happens, but make sure you don't get an extravasation while you're squeezing. Next, if you give the fluids and still find them in shock, start the norepinephrine early. Heck, even if you've just started the fluid, start prepping that norepinephrine anyways and anticipate. Remember, they're riding the presser effect of that last dose of epinephrine. In a lot of cases, that epinephrine effect is going to wear off just in a few minutes, right when you're trying to move the patient. So, you know, get that norepinephrine drip ready, get it in line before their pressure drops. You know, we've also moved it towards weight-based dosing. You'll notice that it starts at around 0.1 mics per kilo per minute. So for the 90 kilogram person, about 30 drips per minute, with plans to titrate it every two minutes, increasing it by eight, with a max dose of 0.5 mics per kilo per minute, which is 150 drops per second. For reference, since that seems hella fast, that max rate is actually the rate of the cowbell in Don't Fear the Reaper by Blue Oyster Cult. Guess what? I got a fever. And the only prescription is more cowbell. Remember for adults, the MAP goal is greater than 65, and for peds, it's based on the age and perfusion. Next up is optimizing care. This is really setting ourselves up for success, making sure we have set our machines to cycle every five minutes at the longest, checking glucose again to make sure we're not hypoglycemic. Thinking about dysrhythmias, you think about VTAC or VFib and considering amio. And thinking through those reversible causes of PEA. After we're all done, now we'll be ready to move. Now we should start to package. And now we can get that ECG to look for a STEMI. Yeah, looking for a STEMI is important. But the honest truth is that no cath lab is going to really take a patient who is absolutely tanking. So stabilizing the patient really early is the thing that promotes the person's survival all around. Plus, if you give them a few minutes, you'll get a more accurate uh, tracing of what their heart's doing underlying rather than what it was doing during the time of arrest. Really, keeping these tips in mind can help you save a life. Wait, what did you say? Save a life. Oh, another dope mnemonic. Dislodge, obstruct, stabilize, airway, vascular access, amio for consideration, levofedinal lucas, infusing fluids under pressure, follow-up vitals, and ECG. Save a life? It, it's a working process. Well, thanks everyone for your time as always. And remember, you can reach out to us with any questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. Docs, thank you so much. Uh, fantastic, as always. Uh, a nice review of the processes. A little emphasis on some of our new guideline updates. And as promised, 
earlier on, I will remind you once again, if you've got questions, comments, concerns, need for clarification on any of the new guideline updates that came out recently, please send us an email, emseducation at milwaukeecountywi.gov, and we will be happy to address them uh, to the best of our ability on our next podcast. And with that, I thank everyone for joining us today. Thanks for taking the time to listen. Stay safe, and we'll see you next month.